Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy that you reach across borders and lines and uh, cultures, Lord, to go after the lost. You leave the 99 to go after the one. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see those around us that are in those camps. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some people in our lives that we consider to be probably less likely to be reached by the gospel message than others. The reason that we have this attitude may be due to their current religious affiliation. Perhaps they're Muslims or Buddhists or from some kind of cult, and we don't think that they will receive that message. Or perhaps the person that comes to your mind is so entrenched in a sinful habit that you don't think that the good news of Jesus can break through. Maybe it's a child or a brother or a son, and you've been praying for them for years, but you feel like it's impossible. And what about those who have been unbelievers for so long that a conversion seems unlikely? Maybe they're in their 80s, your grandpa or grandma, and you think, it's too late, they're too set in their ways. Well, in John chapter 4 here, we meet this individual who falls into all three of those categories that I just mentioned. And yet here we see Jesus himself ministering to her. And I believe that this story has been placed in the New Testament here to give us hope that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus, that everyone is a candidate for the gospel. Before we meet this individual, we must deal with an unusual phrase in the text here. In John 4, 3 through 4, it says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. The historian Josephus, who's commenting on this particular passage, states that the route that was customary for Galileans was to travel and make their way from Jerusalem for the Jewish feast here, and so they would go through this area. But not all Jews took this particular road through that mountainous region of Samaria on their way from Galilee to Judea. Some took the long way around through the Jordan Rift, uh, avoiding the country altogether. The Pharisees, for instance, did not travel through Samaria for reasons we will talk about in a little bit here. So then why does the passage, uh, why doesn't it just say, and he passed through Samaria? Why does it say he had to pass through Samaria? Because he didn't have to do that. He could have gone the other route. And so it seems that Jesus has an appointment to keep. The reason that he took this route was because of this appointment. And I wouldn't take, for instance, Interstate 5 if I had an appointment in Leavenworth. I would take Highway 2. And so he knew where he was headed to meet an unlikely candidate for the gospel message. And there are three things that made her unlikely for this focus that Jesus had in his limited time here on earth. First, Jesus knew her status but ministered to her anyways. The first two things that we recognize about this person is that first she's a female and that she's also a Samaritan. In the Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, it contains blessings, thanksgivings, and petitions. One of these thanksgivings is as follows. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. 
The individual Jesus meets here that day at the well in Samaria fits at least two of these specifications that caused Jewish men to look down upon her. First, she was a woman who in ancient cultures was seen as a second-class citizen by men. In chapter 3 of Genesis, the most tragic event in the history of mankind and the relationship between males and females is narrated for us. Eve has been deceived by the serpent, and her husband has joined her in this, in their darkest moment. And so from this day in history forward, we're looking at completely unhealthy relationships between men and women. Ever since God's curse has been made manifest in numerous situations down to this very day, we see that the woman's desire is against her husband and that he rules over her. That was part of the curse that fell upon mankind because of sin. And one wonders, how were things before? How were they in Genesis? How was their relationship different? In fact, it almost goes without saying that women have been mistreated, abused, taken advantage of, and overworked as far back as recorded history allows us to see. Because of their physical weakness as compared to men, women have had to find a way to get ahead in society where males dominate. It's okay, buddy. <laughs> there are many godly men that have helped them in this endeavor of overcoming these things, including men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and of course Jesus himself here, who was a Jewish man. And so during the Reformation, Luther and Calvin came against the false notion that was espoused by the Catholic Church, that women were, and I quote, unclean pawns of the devil who lured men into sins of lust. They taught that both men and women were created equal in the eyes of God, which was a huge leap at the time. Christianity became the first religion to do this and to this day has been a champion of equality of men and women because it followed the example of its leader, Christ. Jesus did more for women in the three years of his ministry that had been, than had been done by anyone before him and that has done, been done by anyone since him. He revolutionized how women were treated. Some examples of this. In John 8, he does not condemn to death a woman that's caught in adultery, but rather forgives her and turns and confronts her accusers. Also, we see in Matthew 19 that he goes after the religious leaders who wanted to divorce their wives in any way for every reason, therefore leaving them destitute and without support. And in Matthew 5, he expands the definition of adultery and fornication to include how a man looks upon a woman and in so doing affords a new level of respect that's due to her. In Luke 8, it's the women who are praised as the ones who are supporting the ministry of Jesus. There it says, some women were with Jesus who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others provided for them out of their means. As the church began to grow, women were also the key supporters in the new church. Some churches had meetings in their homes. Paul names other supporters and fellow workers of the gospel. And so we see this amazing change that occurred. Jesus going out of his way to help women, to help the downtrodden. He even crossed racial and gender barriers to do so. 
And this is clearly seen in his interaction with Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan woman here at the well. And we see also in this clip, that's the first person that he ministered the gospel to publicly that he told was the Messiah. And so she responds, obviously. She's uh, there. He asked for a drink of water. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. The reason that Jews did not associate with Samaritans is that they saw them as impure, half-breeds. We see a bit of the history in 2 Kings 17, 24 through 25. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Chutza, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Even after the Samaritans rebounded and went away from paganism, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And this caused a sharp division between the neighboring regions. So these two facts, that she was female and a Samaritan, made her an unlikely convert. And yet, here we see Jesus sitting at the well, engaging in a conversation. Next, we see that Jesus knew her sins, but still ministered to her. John calls attention to verse 6 here uh, that the woman comes out at the sixth hour, which is noon. And the reason he mentions this uh, as an unusual time is because most women, they came in the morning. It was cooler. It wasn't as hard work. They could come together to protect themselves uh, from men who were marauders or uh, from attack. And so typically they came at that time. And here she comes outside the village, walking out, and Lenski in his commentary on the book of John states that these peculiarities indicated that she was a social outcast. We see the reason why a few verses later when she, uh, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus knew all about her relational past and yet singled her out. He could have spoken to anyone. He could have shown up early in the morning and spoken to some of the women that came at that time. But Jesus tells the religious leaders in Luke 5, 31 through 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have called sinners to repentance. I wonder what the religious leaders would have said to Jesus if they had seen what was going on out there. If they could see him at the well, talking to a woman, talking to a Samaritan, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Now this woman had failed many times. She was divorced five times. You know, Even a couple of times, that would have been significant. Five times though, that means that she had failed time and time again. But in spite of unlikely odds, she was saved. Knowing all of this, Jesus still offers her a drink of the living water. As we think about that water, Jesus came there for a specific reason. Water was something that he needed. 
Water was something that she needed every day. Think about the importance of water. I was just researching water as I was uh, writing this sermon, and just some things that stood out to me. One apple requires 18 gallons of water to grow. A leaky faucet that drips at the rate of one drip per second can waste more than 3,000 gallons a year. It takes seven and a half years for the average American resident to use the same amount of water that flows over the Niagara Falls in one second, 750,000 gallons. There is more fresh water in the atmosphere than in all the rivers on the planet combined. Also, it takes about 70 gallons of water to fill a bathtub. Over 90% of the world's fresh supply of water is located in Antarctica. And refilling a half-liter uh, bottle of water 1,740 times with tap water is the equivalent of the cost of a 99-cent bottle of water at the convenience store. And so in this state here, Jesus needed water to live. He was exhausted from his travels. And he recognizes that this woman is thirsty as well, but not for the kind of water that he needed for his physical well-being, and not the kind of water that could be drawn from Jacob's well. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. There are two things to note here about this living water that's offered by Jesus. First, the one who drank it would never be thirsty again. Human beings have a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched. They're going to fill it with something. They're going to drink from somewhere. And we turn to many different fountains, thinking that we're going to find refreshment for our souls, only to discover that we need to go back time and time and time again in order to receive that filling. As I drive around town, I get depressed sometimes. I see all these people running around to other fountains, looking for that living water, looking for that place that they can be filled. And even as Christians, we are lured away to polluted wells. But if we continue to drink from the fountain that comes from Christ, we will be satisfied we will be satisfied in him. He said, the water that I give will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The spring that he was talking about is the Holy Spirit. He is the fount of every blessing. But notice what the great hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I'm encouraging my own heart this morning to find refreshment in the fountain of life, not these polluted places. My prayer is the same as John With, who wrote, Come Thou Fount. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy throne above. In conclusion this morning, after her conversion uh, and her conversation there with Jesus, the woman in the well went and announced <laughs> to everybody in town, Come see this man who told me everything I'd ever done. And if I were the town folks, that might not seem like very good news, right? <laughs> to go see somebody who could look into your life and look into your past and see all your sins. I probably wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want all of you to know suddenly all the things that I've done bad in my entire life. A man who knows all the skeletons in my closet, a man who can read my mind, the reason that the woman was so excited was because of the last sentence that Jesus spoke to her. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Messiah was sent to save her, not condemn her. As Jesus himself said in his conversation with Nicodemus, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. And many out there today believe that if they come to Jesus, they're going to receive condemnation. This one who knows all their sins, this one who knows their past, that knows the skeletons in their closet. And I love how they depicted it here, that look on Jesus' face. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. And so even though you may be a Gentile, outside God's chosen race or people, and even though you might be a slave to sin, and even though you might be an unlikely candidate, Jesus has a meeting with you at the well of living water. Come and drink and thirst no more. This is our message to those around us as we invite them to church, not to come and be condemned, not to come and be judged, but to come and receive and drink that living water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing message. We all need that living water. Fill us, O Lord God, and help that overflow our lives into the lives of others so that they may see that they can come and find a man who knew everything that they ever did but still loves them and does not condemn them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.